Here's Dick in the peace and quiet of his apartment. Then suddenly an all yell breaks loose. Look, you talk to her tonight, and by tomorrow you got a story. What a story. What a night. Debbie leads Dick a merry mad chase as he tries to pry into a teenager's intimate secrets. All that guck about bringing me here for ideas for a movie. I'll bet you got ideas. Young lady, the day has not arrived when a man my age... I don't know any men your age, but they're probably just as bad as any men my age. I'm sure. They just don't wear diapers, that's all. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Welcome to Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. This is Kim again, and today I am joined by Drea Clark and Samantha Ellis. Today we are getting our Christmas selections started as we get uncomfortably close to December. I say because we are recording this in middle of November. Today we are discussing a strange, unique, fun bit of loaded potentially discussion, a slightly Christmas film with the 1954 film Susan Slept Here. There's a lot, lot, lot to go into, but I'll give us a quick rundown. The film stars Dick Powell as a Hollywood screenwriter who's just living his life. He's got a butler-ish companion guy played by Green Acres' Alvy Moore, which I couldn't separate from Green Acres the entire time I watched it. However, their delightful bachelor existence was turned on its head when the police show up the night before Christmas in toting a juvenile delinquent played by Debbie Reynolds in tow. She's young, she's sprightly, she's supposedly 17, if we believe the narrative, and the goal is that Dick Powell's character is going to keep her out of prison because what kid wants to spend Christmas in prison? So one thing leads to another. They end up getting married. There's the plot. Will this May-ish December? This is a January, December. (laughs) January, December. And who who are our guest stars here? So we have Debbie Reynolds, Dick Powell, Alvy Moore, and the indomitable Anne Francis, who I cannot say good enough things about, Glenda Farrell. And this was directed by Frank Tashlin, who many people will probably know from things like the number of Jerry Lewis movies he did. He did what? The Girl Can't Help It and all that kinds of fun stuff. So let's start out with a very basic question. Had either of you seen this film before? I have not. And I was like, huh, Dick Powell, Debbie Reynolds. And you know how sometimes, like math is not my strong suit. Sometimes when I look back at classic films and I'm like, oh, you know, that's funny. I would have thought of them from different eras. Oh, I wonder if he plays her dad. What what am I going to be watching here? Because it's age appropriate for him to play her father. He was 50 years of age and she was, what, 21? He would have been happily married for many years past college graduation and then sired Debbie Reynolds. And then, as you said, it starts, it's got this like, oh, we're fun to be boppy. And Debbie Reynolds is like the most whirling dervish of wonderful kinetic energy. And oh, God, she's just adorable, which makes it even more troubling how she is unnecessarily sexualized the entire first half of this movie. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Is them being like, oh, she is 
underage. She's a minor. We'll take you to jail. Don't do anything inappropriate. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And then it turns a corner. And then the whole second half, I'm like, oh, no, 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 baby. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, it was a real emotional roller coaster for me. Susan slept here. Real emotional roller coaster. I just have to say, I've seen this movie quite a few times now. If anyone has listened to the podcast before, I'm basically David Reynolds' biggest fan. I adore her. I think she's just the best in everything, including this. The most unbelievable thing in this movie, aside from the age difference, is the fact that she plays a juvenile delinquent. (laughs) That's a little bit ridiculous. But um, I've definitely seen this movie before. And the age discussion is one that I knew we would have and one that I think is so appropriate and so interesting this movie in general is interesting to put under a modern lens i think and that's one of the reasons i was particularly excited to talk about it this was a first time watch for me all the way through i had started this at some point and got distracted or something and hadn't came back to it i just remembered the color palette that incredible design this is one of those rich luscious candy color frank tashlin films That man was such an artist in terms of how he put those frames together. And that stuck into my head. But as I came back to this, I couldn't get over that whole age difference. I was stunned. And I say this as a Dick Powell fan. Before we get into it, here's a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joys of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people. Christine Meyer, Danny. David Floyd, Jacob Haller, and MCF. Our Patreon website is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Be sure to check out our other channels as well. We're on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as YouTube and Instagram. Help us out. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Now, back to the show. Since we've already gotten there, let's just start with that little elephant in the room of the whole age discrepancy between our two darling leads in this film. As we jump into it, like we said, Susan of the title is 17 years old, if we listen to the plot. And I kept getting caught up in Dick Powell's age because he is, what, roughly about 50 years old here, if we look at when they were shooting. Are we supposed to take it seriously that he is 35? They make such a funny point of him. Like she says that her mother is 34 and he gives her this look. And then he's like, I'm older than 34 or something. And she's like, what? He's like 35. And I was like, well, that's clearly a joke because you are an aged man. My friend, you are a wonderful actor with a rich and storied career and five decades of life under your aging belt. And so they hearken back to it as well of him being 35 later on. So I'm like, oh, that's not a, j- I thought that was a fun joke because that was still at that's the beginning when he was behaving like appropriately. And so then I'm like, oh no, they've specified that he's a good 15 years younger than he actually is because it's already skeezy and every single additional year makes it skeezier. And I mean, illegal from the get go. <laughs> just so gross just so gross yes debbie reynolds was 21 or 22 when she shot but she of course Mm -hmm. looked 12 until she was 80 so 
What are you going to do with that? It's the split of them. You know, we have so many stories and classic romances that have this red flag now of age differences of you have your Cary Grants and Audrey Hepburn. We've seen it so many times and some of them work more than others. And many of them are like, oh, Fred Astaire, I think you should have passed on this. But with this one, it's also the story is about their age difference. Normally, we're just sort of like skirting past it and we're like, they're adults. She's 21. Wink, 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 wink. wink. Or like, (laughs) do you mean like they're adults of differing ages, but they're adults. This, the entire plot is incited by the fact that this is a minor in the eyes of the law. And not just that, but one with troubled background. There's so many things in this that I'm like, this is going into my pantheon of just red flag problematic movies because it's shocking to me or, you know, especially through our mindset, but it should have been to them as well of like, oh, we're crafting this entire story about how this troubled young woman with clearly a shaky home life has already had difficulties with law enforcement and all of this is handed over. And she assumes at the beginning that it's for sexual purposes. And ultimately she is correct. She says, don't touch me. She's terrified at some point. And they do so much legwork that first half to try and show how they're like, oh no, we get it. We see all of these problems and look how he's such a respectful man. Look at him keeping his hands in his pocket. He's just trying to protect her. So it makes the turn that much uglier when you're like, oh God, is this going to end with this young girl coercing him into bed? Oh, good. Oh, good. It is. I just was so, so deliciously creeped out, you guys. I suppose I should also jump in and say to anyone out there with their fingers on the send button to talk to us about the history, we are aware this is 1954. We've all looked at the feminine mystique. We've all read books. We are aware of what the age gaps were and the difference is there. So we are aware of the history in there. But the history is one of those things of, sure, it might have taken us all societally longer to recognize how problematic that was. But it shouldn't have. A 50-year-old man marrying a 17-year-old child, like, you shouldn't need to get away with a, well, in that time, no, 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 no. They were a lot more cognizant of the situation when they were making it than we give them credit for. As you said- They 100% were. They do so much work being like, oh, we see all of these pitfalls, and then they just did them anyway. Right. And the first half of the film, sort of touching on what you mentioned, the legal hoops that they jump through (laughs) to try to keep this on the level. I mean, we have the deus ex machina in the form of the mother's supposed written consent that we never see. (laughs) And all of that. Wait, will you clarify that more, Samantha, in case anyone needs a refresher on what that written consent exactly was? Because it blew my mind. So part of Debbie Reynolds' character, Susan's background as a juvenile delinquent is the fact that her mother took a powder on her and left and married her boyfriend. But Debbie herself explains to the man, Dick Powell, in this film, oh, I wanted them to go. I wanted them to abandon me so they could have a nice marriage without me. And as far as my care, I told my mom that I was going to marry my high school sweetheart, George. And I got her written consent to marry whenever I wanted. 
because of that. But I don't think I'm going to marry him. I don't love him. So instead, we see her marry a 35-year-old man. And I think that... Which also means that this written consent, that her mother gave her a blank check. It wasn't, oh, I approve. I'm not going to be there. (laughs) Why would I be there when my underage daughter gets married? But... I do approve of it. Also, she can marry whomever she wants. And clearly another great example of the excellent parenting she had supporting her. (laughs) She obviously trusts her a little too much because before she gets married to anyone, she gets arrested. (laughs) That's the amount of faith that her mom put in her. But I think it's hilarious that you guys didn't believe Dick Powell when he said he was 35. I mean, of course, when I think of Dick Powell and Debbie Reynolds, I also think of them from very different eras. But I think that this movie wouldn't be the same without either one of them. I think he's a little old for Do you think that's a good thing? I do, because I think that if we had an actual 35-year-old in this role... I think that people would be making very unhealthy excuses. (laughs) Well, that leads us into an interesting area. Similar to what we talked about last episode with Laura and the alternative casting. Did either of you dive into the history of this and see the hands that went through in terms of actors in specifically the male parts? Prior to Debbie Reynolds was attached from what I read from the get go. So this was always meant to be Debbie Reynolds as Susan. But then specifically, the Dick Powell character was initially tied to what I believe Dan Daly with also Robert Mitchum briefly tied to it as well before Robert Mitchum turned it down, which I think rightly so, because I think that actually proves your point, Samantha. Imagine Mitchum marrying Debbie Reynolds. But I think it would be the same level of threat. A 35-year-old, like if I'm thinking of Robert Mitchum, who also weirdly already has a Christmas movie that involves him doing something questionable to keep a woman out of prison. One of my favorites, Holiday Affair. The idea of Robert Mitchum at 35 seeming any less inappropriate or older or threatening because of his age. No, the only 35-year-old that I wouldn't question would be a just stone cold dullard where it's like, oh, he's a simple man. Like he was dropped on his head and now he's no threat. It's- well, what I'm saying is actually, it's funny that you talk about Mitchum in particular, but what I'm saying is if an actual 35 year old played this part, there would be a lot of people today not even questioning it. Expand on that. It's funny because as we're talking about this, not to bring up a totally unrelated modern comparison, but we're talking about age difference here. We have the Taylor Swift video that just came out with a 19-year-old and a 30-year-old, and people are questioning it, but it doesn't look wrong on screen. They don't talk about the age, obviously, in the film. Oh, I think it looks horribly wrong, and that's why they cast them. God bless us for going on a Taylor Swift tangent in our classic film podcast. But one of the things with her initial relationship was how inappropriate it was. She was 19 and he was 29. And then there's still all of these actors who date such young women. And it's foolish to pretend, especially women who are in their teens, that there's an appropriate level of solidarity there or that it's not being questioned. Like, I actually liked that that's part of the conversation of Taylor Swift, which is how unwieldy such an unbalanced relationship can be when you have someone so young with someone dramatically older with more life experience as an adult. It's kind of hard to put into words, but there are people in modern day 
who see a difference between a 19 year old and a 30 year old and they don't bat an eye. But I guess I think universally, I agree. I agree with you. I just think those people are trash. How's that? <laughs> I think that you are a garbage person to a certain element if you look at a relationship between a 30 year old and a 19 year old and don't have a lot of questions and issues with that. In addition to the fact that if a 35-year-old were in that role, there are modern people that would not even bat an eye. In addition to that, I think Robert Mitchum is a lot more threatening than Dick Powell. So even if say, slightly more age-appropriate, if Robert Mitchum and Debbie Reynolds were in the same room and they had any kind of chemistry going on, I would think that he would intentionally try to seduce her. I would not necessarily think the same about Dick Powell, despite the fact that he's even older. Sure. I fully agree with you on that. Like, I think that as misguided and erroneous the premise is, Dick Powell does a good job of navigating. Like I said, they do. They set up all of their narrative beats in the beginning. Half of this movie are set up to show how this man is really doing the work and approaching things from a genial and considerate and respectful of her independence and her youth and everything else. And that he's genuinely just trying to help her out. And I think he does a really good job with that. I think that he comes across as a really nice man. He's a writer and it has this very funny framing device with this Oscar statue talking to him, which is kind of endearing and just trippy because it's sort of related, but not really. But I do. I think Dick Powell does a great job with it because he does come across like he's a good hearted person. That's partially why it makes me resent the people behind the camera even more. Ugh, what a gross thing to put on this man who comes across as a good person and like he's doing all of this and you are all just trying to justify some garbage the whole time. I fully agree with you. I think that it would be a difficult casting to find someone who would seem as non-predatory as he is. And, you know, like when he excuses himself or like they end up, they go to Vegas, they get married. I totally imagined that her mom's written consent was handwritten on like a napkin or something. And like they show that to the Elvis guy who married, oh, it could have been Elvis, but I guess it's pre pre having Elvis pastors. (laughs) (laughs) But so they get married and then his whole thing is he keeps her up dancing all night so that they don't have a wedding night. And then they get the cab and get their sleeping bodies driven back. And then he puts her in bed like a child and a tow truck specifically. Oh, right. And who's making the money. Yeah. And so that is believable. Like you have such goodwill towards what an easygoing and thoughtful person. And when he makes that decision, again, they've set it up of like, what? She's going to be charged with something. And then of course, nobody's bringing up, you know, there are thousands of children her age in juvenile detention for the same sort of, are you going to marry them all? Are you trying to change the system? It's this high conceit film. It's just that that high conceit is irredeemable to me of what they're trying to do. But the people who are doing it because you have such likable leads, that's another reason. Like I'm rooting for them so much. I want him to continue to be a good, not disgusting person. And I want her to be the sweet, vivacious, her whole whirlwind energy. The I was like, what pockets is this woman picking? She is like, you can see her 12 miles away. Debbie Reynolds. She's like, she's so cute with her little jacket. (laughs) I was, as you can tell, weeks later, flabbergasted. (laughs) 
It's funny that you talk about Dick Powell's good intentions, because I do think for a minute there, they try to set it up like it's going to be a nice fatherly relationship with the mink and the mistletoe. They make you believe there's a way to fix this horrible situation and have them be really close without it being romantic. And I think the romance is added sort of as an after the fact. But of course, if they have limited options for how to get Debbie out of this jam, one of them is marriage and there's nothing barring them from getting married. You know, at first Dick Powell's like, okay, let's do this legally. Then I'll go away for two months and we'll get an annulment. Nothing romantic about that at all. They do it. And then Debbie's feelings come in because she's 17 and because it's Dick Powell and because he's cute. Like, of course that's going to happen. And then they turn it into something twisted. That's kind of where it all unravels. I'm so glad you brought that up because again, it's that thing that they're so close to investigating something deeper, but they don't. And the idea they pivot the whole time when they're justifying Oh, he's a good guy. And oh, she's the one who does this. But I love what you just said. Of course, she's the one who did it. She's a 17 year old who's now been treated with respect, possibly for the first time, who has been given bodily Mm -hmm. autonomy and distance and allowed to make her own choices. And again, maybe for the first time. And so, of course, she's going to have a like, like a flibberty or a romantic. That's the crux of what grooming's about. I don't think Dick Powell's character is grooming her, but I think that he's doing the things that someone with bad intentions would do to win her over. So that's what I mean. They're so close to almost like, ooh, we've turned this on the head of, of how these things look and how young women would be like, oh, no, I... It's like the teachers who sleep with their students and like, oh, she initiated. Oh, she, I'm like, certainly. I'm certainly it is all her doing because it is, this is an interesting insight to Mm -hmm. see the work that could go into getting a girl into that headspace of, no, no, I want him. I lust after him. Oh yes, Dick Powell. If I were 17 years old and a 50 year old Dick Powell came at me, I would probably say yes, 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 please too completely agree with what you're saying. They're walking such a tightrope here because 50-year-old Dick Powell in his 1950s dad sweater is one thing. This plot with him, it's not as threatening, even though there is that level beneath it. If Robert Mitchum at 35 with a lascivious grin in his face and a you know, joint in his mouth comes at you. That's a completely different vibe we have here. They must have been walking on eggshells with this crafting because there's so much sexualization that can and could come into it. This is Debbie Reynolds in like Tammy is exactly what I thought of was Tammy. She's loud and young and she's supposed to be 17 and she's, you know, she's coming off like 15. She's hooting and hollering as they bring her up the stairs. And there's a certain sexualization that you have that Debbie Reynolds does not bring. Which is an interesting segue because Anne Francis, whom I also love, I didn't agree with her casting in this, not because she didn't kill it. Of course she killed it. She's like, she always and kills beautiful it beautiful and worldly she always kills she's it she's iconic in this. she's yeah she's also 25 years of age to me i'm like no get like a very well preserved socialite 40 year old actress like the whole thing of it was him stringing this woman along and they've been together forever and they just go they party about the town and it's all sort of surface 
Whereas I'm like, well, no, what I'm getting now is now you have precedent for much younger partners. And I don't feel great about that. And it also meant that the differences between Anne and Debbie started to become much more about styling than like actual, mm-hmm. like what their characters were, their lives had gone through. I'm like, no, only a- And they make a point of that in the film too, towards the second half where Debbie is trying to be more like Anne Francis. It's not a matter of age as much. They don't bring up her age in comparison to Debbie's. They bring up how stylish she is and how accomplished she is. But I was going to bring up the fact, to be clear, Debbie was 22 when this was filmed and Anne was 24. So they were very close in age. But it's true. It's like night and day. I mean, Debbie has like the blue jeans and she's loud. She's got a ponytail. And Frances is totally coiffed and styled and she's got glasses and minks and she's just gorgeous. But we know that Dick and Anne are not going to work out from the beginning. They would have gotten married by now if that were the case. So we root for Debbie a little bit. Is, is that horrible to say? I'm kind of. I'm- I want Debbie to get what she wants. And I think I'm biased just because I love her so much. And I will also point out that off screen, Debbie Reynolds did have a crush on Dick Powell during filming. I I read he was amazing to her, right? She loved him during this. And we all all made questionable choices in our 20s. I get it. (laughs) For me, rooting for Debbie's character for Susan meant I kept thinking, please, sir, Buy her an education at a Swiss boarding school. She can't be extradited. You can afford it. She could use the education. They've set up this thing of, oh, if he wants to help her, there's only one legal way to do it. And we know that because they bring in an actual lawyer. It honestly reminded me of, this is the kind of hoop that I'm about to bring up a filmmaker in a film. I would have a year ago bet you a million dollars I never would. And friends, that is... Transformers Part 4 by Michael Bay has a, (laughs) as I'm sure everyone listening to this has watched, has a storyline in it where the teen boy and girlfriend in it, he's 19 and she's 16 or 17. And they have gone and gotten a legal like Romeo and Juliet card to say that it's okay that they have sex and it's not statutory rape, even though her boyfriend's in college and she's like a sophomore in high school or something. And I remember like they show a shot of this legal document, right? And I remember thinking, what disgusting pervy justification, just make her 18. What are we doing? And that was the similar vibe I had in this whole movie of, wait, this whole thing is about how young she is. Oh, and we're all just going to keep turning the corners. But you, I'm delighted I got to bring up Michael Bay. I thought it would never happen. I didn't think that was here possible in this no. podcast. And you yeah. made that work. And I, that's, I completely can't believe I didn't I even think of that. <laughs> so yeah. sad. It's a very big line between 17 and 18. And I mean, Samantha, I can hear it in your voice. And it's, Debbie Reynolds is great in this. This is not knocking Debbie Reynolds at all. This is not knocking Debbie Reynolds's performance. This is during an incredibly good time for her. I particularly love these stretch of movies because she has, what, Athena in there? She has Hit the Deck. These are some of those movies that I just think of. Debbie Reynolds at her most absolutely adorable self. But that also leads me to one thing that I kept sticking with me throughout the film. I didn't buy her as a juvenile delinquent, which I think is part of 
maybe the struggle I had with it. There's some questions that can be asked because when they bring her up, the police go, oh, you know, hold on, let's let me go grab her. She's handcuffed to the steering wheel. And then they kind of come wrestling her upstairs. And she's like I said, she comes off like Tammy. So a little rough around the edges to start. But then she cleans up so fast within, you know, 20 minutes of the movie. She's Debbie Reynolds and Athena. Debbie Reynolds had hit the deck wearing those adorable dresses and it's not just her look, but also her attitude. She doesn't really do anything to make a scene or behave badly in the rest of the film, aside from really that first scene. You don't believe by even, you know, 30 minutes into the movie that she's the same person who hit a sailor over the head with a beer bottle. It just doesn't make sense. And when you look at her, you don't even really believe that either. Roger Corman could have made this exact same movie and it would have been completely different. (laughs) Oh my God. I I definitely want, I definitely, while we're talking about this film, I want to talk about the genius of Frank Tashlin. Oh, please. I am a big fan of him as a director. I'm most familiar with his work with Jane Mansfield in The Girl Can't Help It and Will Success by Rock Hunter. You were saying before he was larger than life. I think the vibrancy of this film, how over the top every scene is, including the fantasy sequence, the color, the casting everything about it. It's just exaggerated. And all of his films make you feel like you're in the middle of a comic strip or a cartoon. And I think that is so fascinating. And it's so timely for the 50s too, because to me, the studio system is kind of fading or it's about to fade at this point. You've got a lot of these really golden age films of the 50s, but by the late 50s, a lot of Frank Cashlin's work was the last bit of vibrancy and escapism you're going to get in film. So I think that Tashlin specifically, I have a lot of respect for him. So this is a movie that has, to me, a really big rewatch factor, despite its flaws. I could watch the last part over and over again, where she's got the ball gown on, she set the whole dinner, and then just the way that they cut away, and when they cut back, they're like, swinging together in the birdcage and it's the end if she were age appropriate that would be genius if it wasn't the movie it was or with the people it was it would be great i was so horrified by that ending like you couldn't pay me to watch it again you know what i did like though and it actually is the very frank tashlin of it and was such a fun dick powell nod was that like musical moment it's do you know i mean this whole thing is played very straight and like you can tell it's a, a, a sailor play, suit, right? You can tell it's a play adaptation. Yeah. The fact that he was wearing a glittered sailor suit yeah. is, is such a cute nod to his work in the 30s and musicals. No, fully. I, I know it was so satisfying. Like if you're going to have Dick Powell in something and you're going to this point of, oh, so we need you to seduce a child. But we're going to give you a song. It's going to be great. There's going to be a really fun song sequence. That to me was like this beautiful, like I was saying, it was, it's a very much an adaptation of a stage play because so much of it is just in the apartment, but the apartment is so well designed and that camera's moving so much and they're shooting all over and it has all those, like, there's not a 90 degree angle to be found. Like, it's all just like, what's happening with this apartment? 
All those and, pinks and those sparkly whites. Yeah, and it's and, like ridiculous colors. And I loved that and the flow of it. And then I loved the inclusion of the sort of musical sequence. It made me even cringe even more when it nodded back to it with them. I was like, oh, God. Oh, because also in the musical sequence, she is sexier. I just was, oh, my goodness. The whole time I'm like, oh, no, where's your mother, young lady? You know who else, though, that I do want to give it up for is and then we can talk more about there's other casts. I know that Samantha has some praise for Glenda Farrell, who's playing the Drea Clark role, I think. I, I like it to was think the I'm, same age as Dick Powell. I'm just going to yeah. put that out there. They were the same age. <laughs> they look it. Yes. But this was produced by Harriet Parsons, who I've yes, always thank found, you for mentioning like, that. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by Luella Parsons daughter. And she was one of few female producers who was working and has a solo produced by title card. Those are still hard to get now. I can't imagine fighting for one in like the early fifties, but the idea, and this I think was like forced on her, <laughs> which is even funnier. No, it's, it's probably a very much a bummer for her. It's funny to me that this was forced on a female producer who was like, I can't believe you're going to make me spend all my time working on this statutory rape peon. Like, oh, I do love that she was behind this. And just in case people aren't aware of her, of the work that she did as one of the few sort of trailblazing female producers, which makes sense. You know, she had Parsons blood. Luella has what a bit part in there as well. Luella is on the phone. It's very cute. This movie That's another one of the things that I do genuinely like about this movie is all of the nods back to Hollywood. I mean, they literally show the Oscars. And one of the things that I love the most about classic film is when they show establishing location shots from that time period, it really makes you feel like you're watching a piece of history. And all of the shots of 50s LA, I think are just so cool. And while we're talking about those nods to Hollywood and those callbacks, Glenda Farrell really puts this movie into perspective for me because as I was mentioning to my other lovely co-host before we started recording, the first time that I watched this, I was a gigantic fan of Debbie Reynolds, of course, and I had heard of Dick Powell. This might have actually been my first Dick Powell movie, but I had never even heard of Glenda Farrell. And I didn't really even pay attention to her the first time that I watched this. I think I paid specific attention to her at the time that I watched this for the podcast because I am so used to her 30s roles now. She's just genuinely a part of my movie watching experience. She pops up so much in the pre-code films that I love. I literally just last week watched her in The Merry Wives of Reno, which is from 1934. So seeing her 20 years later in this totally different makeup and hairstyle and everything and and the role that she plays too puts this into perspective for me so much and goes on even further to show how inappropriate this is because she easily would have been a dick powell love interest in the 30s and here Mm -hmm. she is as the old secretary that nobody wants yeah not just the old but like not even sexless but just like disgusting like uh, like Apparently. she's the which well, was interesting because when you first see her and I recognized her, I was like, oh, is that his wife? I did not know a single thing what this movie was about. And so they're sitting and she's typing for him and it's his thing. And I was like, oh, and I honestly for a second was like, is this a story about how his wife is secretly like writes all his scripts? Like, is that what I'm watching here? 
And then it came about, I was like, oh no, I'm watching a grown man try and seduce a child. Total different genre. But she is wonderful and adds both her and Herb Vigren, Vigren add such like sparkle as his kind of underlings. Or is it Horace McMahon? Either way. I just think of Alvy Moore, the Niffy actor's name. I'm terrible oh, at yeah, character yeah. names on this one. Virgil. Alvy Moore played his assistant. So everyone surrounding them was like, I'm thinking of the two cops, but like the, you know, Alvy and Glenda, like there's such a fun energy for him to bounce around and like that they know him so well and they all have their sort of stories buttoned up at the end as well. Like there's so much care and thought put into this movie. Like we have all seen so many more movies that just seem so slapdash or like, oh, like no, these characters did not have anything to do other than like ask a question so that the lead could say something. Whereas I felt all of your supportings, even the two cops had different energies and different what they're getting out of each scene, which is another thing that blows my mind that the fundamental premise of this is so problematic to me because I do think so much care went into the making of it. I totally agree. I think this is a really strong supporting cast in general. Watching this, I haven't seen Alvy Moore in anything else. I'm not a big fan. I think the attitude he brings and the mood he brings is so great. But I don't know, just like looking at him compared to Dick Powell always feels so weird to me. In a role almost played by Mickey Rooney. May I that would have been that out. even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> somewhat age appropriate because do you really believe that dick powell and alvy moore were in the navy together <laughs> no no i do not yeah it doesn't make a whole lot of sense they, one yeah, question that 20 i wanted years different yeah one question that i wanted to ask the group since this technically is our christmas episode do we believe this is a christmas film why or why not it's christmas through the eyes of frank tashlin i guess because you have the white trees and the pink and nothing about it felt Christmas to me at all, with the exception of there being Christmas decor and the fact that it took place over Christmas at the start. One of my favorite things that grew out of the movies is the idea that Christmas has an almost supernatural element to it, that Christmas is a holiday where like a magical thing can happen or people react or treat people in different ways. And I think that's because of so many movies. So many Christmas movies have that. You have your spirit or your Santa or your whatever. And so it has that kind of, oh, we have to do something beyond. Like if these guys had shown up on a Thursday in June and been like, oh, there's this juvenile delinquent. You might get some stories out of her. I can see him being like, okay, I don't have time for this. I'm going to dinner or whatever. But there's something about Oh, he doesn't want this to happen to her over Christmas. So it's less about evoking what I think any of us associate with Christmas. Like I personally would love if my Christmas just meant going to like a red tie dinner and then out on the town and no family. Don't tell my mother I said that. But for most people, that is not the shape of your Christmas. It's more in the mindset of, oh, it's the season to be giving and to be taking care of our fellow man, especially if they're attractive young girls. Oh my gosh. I think this is sort of a Christmas movie, question mark. It's really hard for me to definitively say either way, because this has a lot of really great mid-century like Christmas decor, as, mm -hmm. as you guys were saying. 
I love the huge pile of presents that Dick Powell has, which we don't really see any of aside from the mink. Like he has a gigantic pile and he has like two, three people in his life. Right, that he brings into his own home and he gives Maud her one box. The tiniest little box. tiny box. And then there's like one box that was meant to go to his girlfriend with the stole that he gives to the girl. So I'm like, wait, you brought him like 15 packages, my guy. Did you get those all for yourself? That's what I want to think. Because that's the Christmas I want, where I've just packed all of these presents under a tree and I know what all of them are because I bought them for myself. Or the other 13 are all for Alvy Moore. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that. So he's got the giant pile of gifts. We see the tree. But if we dive a little deeper than that, this movie really hinges on the fact that it's Christmas. Sort of touching on what Drea was saying, not only does he feel more inclined to take her in because it's Christmas, the police explain that they basically wouldn't have brought her over in the first place if it hadn't been Christmas. They say, oh, we didn't want her to spend Christmas in jail. Mm-hmm. So, And then I remember that I had this conversation with you that you wanted to talk to a juvenile delinquent to get a good story. So it really does hinge on the fact that it's Christmas. If this movie took place over a shorter period of time, I think that this would be much more of a Christmas movie. Like if it was one of those, like the apartment where it's from Christmas to like New Year's or something like that. But it of course takes place over like the months that he's away and then he comes back and they have the whole scene where they get back together. So it takes place over a decent period of time, which doesn't make it as much of a Christmas movie to me. And the fact that they don't really bring it up after Christmas. Yeah, I think the Christmas is definitely there. It's baked into all of their rationale of why this is okay. Just stay with us. It's fine. I would not look at this and feel later of like, oh, you know what I want to watch to feel the like Christmas spirit? Susan slept here. That's the other thing that my mind goes to as well. But the fact that there is technically a Debbie Reynolds Christmas movie, I think is amazing. And I just love Debbie Reynolds that much. So I find any excuse to watch her. And if she's in a kind of Christmas movie and I feel in a kind of Christmas mood, I will put this on. It is delightful, especially from that angle. It does give a little bit of something. The first half is Christmas. But then once they move to Vegas, then you kind of lose the Christmas in it. And it turns into a bit of a 1950s relationship comedy. Let's give last minute recommendations. Would you recommend this film? This movie horrified me, possibly as like an October film for someone in the future looking for like a horror film or a something like that. I think, no, I do think this would be a really great film to watch with a group of people and have this kind of conversation. Because like I said, it's tricky. It's a very likable, very competent cast. It's really well made. There's so much fluidity to it. There's so much going on all the time. So there's a lot to take in there. But it's so, so problematic that if I had watched it by myself and had no one to talk, I would have been mad that I watched it. I would have been like, oh my God, now I have all this rage and nowhere to put it. But I do think if you watched it with people and were able to talk out, because then you can do like we did of, oh, okay, I've gotten past the things that are real problematic. So I can also acknowledge the things that worked, but you know, it leads to great conversations about what in the world, why do we think this is okay or appropriate at any time? And 
you know, there's so many deeper things to be discussed with this. So for that and for using film as a catalyst for thought provocation at all, I think, yes, but do not watch it alone. (laughs) Samantha, how about you? I am a fan of this movie. I would recommend it. Of course, I totally agree with Drea. I think this is one of those movies. There are so many problematic movies that we still love to watch and still love to talk about. Breakfast at Tiffany's comes to mind. I'm thinking of others with like age play involved, like, of course, Lolita and Too Young to Kiss with Van Johnson and June Allison comes to mind. They all go under the umbrella of movies that can't be remade. I definitely would not want to see this remade with this plot. That's just not going to happen. But as it stands, I definitely love it. And it appeals to me because of Frank Tashlin's like genius direction, because of Debbie Reynolds, because I adore her so much and will watch her in literally anything. And because I'm a newfound fan of Glenda Farrell. So I'm going to watch this for her too. So for those reasons, I would definitely recommend it. If those things don't appeal to you, I don't think you'll find anything good in it. So that's my two cents. I'm not sure I could really follow those with anything more eloquent. I completely agree. It's a fun visually. I love Dick Powell, Debbie Reynolds. There's such fun here, but this is one of those classic films where there's a loaded topic. It's there. We can't look away from it. We can't ignore the fact what's happening here on screen. The fact that she's conveniently 17 and not 18. And the fact that she's just so adorably spunky and not at all a grown woman. But if the direction, if the cast, if delightful 1950s nostalgia speaks to you, dive on in. You might enjoy it. Like Drea said, watch it with a group. Have fun with it. What are your thoughts on Susan Slept Here? Have you seen it? Talk about Dick Powell, did the delightfulness of Debbie Reynolds. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Perhaps we will get to it on a future episode. Now, we have a special guest joining us. I'm here. I'm back. Yay, Kristen. Yay. I am here temporarily. I'm taking an unsanctioned work break off of the secret project that I cannot tell people about, but I will be able to tell you about it soon. So yeah, technically, is it procrastination? Yes, but it's for a good cause. Because I don't know if Drea Clark announced this at the top of the episode, but this is your last episode. Explain why you're leaving us, Drea. Oh, no. I've had such a delight with you three. I can't even tell you. Like, I keep second guessing this. And I really do hope I get to come back in, like, starring guest roles in future 2022 episodes. You're Mildred Natwick. You make every episode better. So, but we can't. You get me. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. You get so anytime, me. anytime you are here, it's like we have that special something that people are going to be like, oh, yeah, every episode's great, but this one's better. Kristen, I want you to know I did in our discussion of 1954's Susan Slept Here brought up Michael Bay's Transformers 4. So that is what I can bring to the table for good or for bad. No, I loved every ticklish moment with you all. And it's really just as as you can all relate. My plate is just getting too full and I don't like to do things unless I can really do right by them. And I respect and love our time together. So yes, I'm sadly having to bow out of being a regular part of what we're doing, but I hope I am still popping up and likely it will probably be continuing, hopefully, to accidentally just crush on whatever 
dreamy love Samantha has for something and then just me coming in with like pragmatic we needed that she's 17 (laughs) and we need that all episodes so it's been so amazing having you here and it, it really won't be the same it genuinely won't and we'll miss you very much exactly so I here, felt here. like not only is this the last episode of the year is Drea's last episode and I would be a horrible human being who would instantly regret it forever if I did not come on and say a few words unfortunately I'm not as cool as Drea so I did not write speech or anything so I'm just gonna just go off of the top of my head and that loud thump that you heard in the background was my cat discovering that a fly is in my room <laughs> but no I mean if you've been listening to the show as long as you have hopefully you have Drea if memory serves, was the first co-host that we ever got. Samantha was close behind, but Drea was the first person to reach out to me when I said, hey, I'm sick of talking to myself. So I would love somebody who is a classic film nerd to come on and make me feel less lonely. And I figured I'd find some film bro dude whose definition of classic film would be something from 1983 and it would be terrible and the podcast would end. But no, Drea Clark showed up and she said that she wanted to do this podcast. And I think that if it were not for Drea and Samantha thinking that we were all so cool enough, I don't like to think about what would have happened to the show if I would have just burned out and moved on. Drea brings such fun and vigor and to use a word that she has brought into the pantheon of Tip Wish Business, ha-cha-cha, to this show that it's going to be hard to not have you on every episode, but we love you and we appreciate your time and what you brought to the show. So I'm not going to get maudlin and cry, but no, I just- I, I know, I'm to- already crying. <laughs> four years, it's really been a long time. It's been almost four years. Yeah. It's. I think it's almost actually been almost five. I think when I started, I think I took like a break in between there. Because I was like, what am I doing with this thing? So no, I think that ticklish business may have started when I took up a microphone and thought that I was Karina Longworth, but it really blossomed when Drea showed up. So I thank her so much for being the person to be like, no, I think we might have something here. Let's continue. And I know that you are always welcome back with open arms. You have all the login. So feel free to just kind of be like, hey, I'm going to be on this episode. Deal with it. I'm delighted to be able to listen to even more of them because I won't listen to the ones with my disgusting voice in it. But now I'll have so many with all of your melodic tones just seeping into my ears. I can't wait. You are all the best. Kim, take us away. I have nothing left to say. This is just fun for me to not have to work. So... Well, thank you for logging in to join us. We are thrilled to have you on for this last episode of the year. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. Help us out. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As every other podcast tells you, these reviews do matter. We are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean, all of those podcasty places. We're also flitting around all the social media spaces, but we spend most of our time on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Instagram at ticklish biz, and give us a visit on YouTube, why don't you? Please like and subscribe if you feel so inclined. We can be found at www.youtube.com slash C slash ticklish business. 
As always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining CCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Right now, Ticklish Business subscribers can get early access to all videos before they air on the site, and Kristen and I have some delightful bonus content coming your way soon. Samantha, where can your fans find you? Well, I am mostly on Twitter at Classic Film Geek, but you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Classic Film Geek, and my blog is musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. Drea, how about you? So people can follow everything you've got going on. I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I'll do my darndest to try and post some things there so people can see what I'm up to. As I mentioned, my name is Kim. You can find me most often on Twitter at kpier624. And you can always keep up with what I'm watching over on Letterbox as well. Kristen, why don't you go ahead and call out your stuff? Yeah, if you want to know what is taking up all of my time, I can't tell you on social media yet, but you can get a decent indication. If you go over to my Twitter at journeys underscore film, I think that's all I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about it. But I did want to throw out before we wrap things up, since this is our last episode of the year, another year is in the books. We are excited. We're already planning 2022. We have a fairly ambitious schedule that sounds great now. Who knows where where it's going to be come March of next year. We'll be crying Um, over our microphones in April. Exactly. But we continue to want to put out really great content. We have some great plans and continue to want to grow this and appreciate everybody's support, everybody who listens to us. And I can't wait to do our top three new discoveries episode because It's going to be utterly insane and a great way to set off 2022. And also, this will be going up at the beginning of December. So you will also be running your Classic Film Secrets and Exchange program, which will be this year. Sign up is free and it's getting bigger every year. So reach out to journeysinclassicfilm at gmail.com. And last but not least, check out our website at journeysinclassicfilm.com. When this episode hits, we'll be smack dab in the beginning of December and everything that entails. In other words, are you ready for holiday movies? Our birthday tribute to Martin Milner will be ongoing throughout the month of December, and there's a plethora of birthdays and centennials coming up this month, all of which Kim is ready to celebrate. So get ready for lots of video and written content coming your way soon. That is the end of our 2021, and we love you all. And Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Good New Year. We'll see you all again in 2022. I promise I'll be back. Thank you all for a great year and for staying with us through everything that was 2021. As mentioned, our look at Susan Slept Here is our last new episode for this year. We'll be taking a short hiatus over the holidays, but we'll be back with a brand new episode on January 12th, where we'll be talking about our top three new discoveries of 2021. Stay tuned. And as always, till then.